do bless you, O Lord. We know that as your people, we were made to worship you. As it says in the prophet Isaiah, the people whom I have formed for myself, my praise they shall declare. And we declare your praise this morning. We know that we were formed for you, for your glory and your purposes, that we were saved out of this world and from ourselves unto yourself to be a part of your people to proclaim your praises. And as you declared your own character in Exodus 34, you are a merciful God, gracious, slow to anger, relenting from calamities, abounding in steadfast love, faithful to us, not forsaking, forgiving iniquity. All of these things are our needs, they're our hopes, they're our glory, it's what we hope in. You are our God and our Savior. And we praise you for showing it supremely, Lord Jesus, for you came forth from the Father, the glory of the Father as the eternal Son of God, lived in righteousness, sinlessness, and a spirit-filled life, and gave yourself in sacrifice for our sins on your cross. You return to glory by your resurrection and ascension. You rule from heaven and direct all things for your purposes and for the benefit of your people. And you will return to bring in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells and where you will reign in open glory forever. We pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us more about this storyline of redemption and glory, more about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. But before we get into Luke, there are a couple of short stories that I have to tell you. So the first short story is the story of Noah, and it comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 6 through 8, if you want to read the whole story, but I'll just read some selected portions of it to you. So then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And behold the, behold, the Lord said, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him regarding the building of the ark, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. And the rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle, beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. 
Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those who were with him in the ark, and the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar." That's the first story. These are really important stories for the passage in Luke that we're looking at today. Second story, a little shorter for you, is the story of Lot. You can find the full version in Genesis 19. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate as a leader of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. The men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone of fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. See, Noah and Lot were righteous men of God. And they were grieved and afflicted by the sin of their communities. They longed to be rescued from evil and evil men and they longed for God to establish his righteousness in the earth. And our longing for the return, the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a similar longing. We're looking forward to the final judgment. We're looking forward to a permanent establishment of righteousness. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 17, starting in verse 20. It's printed for you in your worship folder. And we'll see how Jesus speaks about his own day of glory. You know, Luke records this teaching of Jesus for us to keep up our hope as believers in Jesus living in this world. And he also records it to warn those who live worldly lives, but who might be reading his book, that they should repent and seek the things of eternal value, and soon, because Jesus Christ and his glory is going to be revealed soon, and it will come suddenly without warning. So this morning, it's our hope as we look into the section of Luke that we would just keep on living and longing for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day when he is fully revealed. So the outline of our passage this morning is pretty simple. Jesus instructs the Pharisees right away about the kingdom and that it's present. It's here. And yet, there's more coming. And then he teaches his disciples about his returning with its fullness of blessing 
and its fullness of judgment. And so there are four lessons in our passage this morning. We'll read the sections as we go since it's so lengthy, but verses 20 to 21, we learn that the kingdom of God is already here. And then in verses 22 to 25, even though it's already here, Jesus teaches that he will yet have his day of full glory. Then in verses 26 to 29, we learn that Jesus is going to return very suddenly and with swift judgment. And finally, in verses 30 to 37, that that day of the Lord, that will finalize everything. So the first lesson is that the kingdom of God is already here. The Messiah, Jesus, brought the kingdom of God. And so we read at the beginning in verses 20 through 21, being asked by the Pharisees, Jesus is being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, well, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about the coming of the kingdom of God. Of course, at this point in the Gospel of Luke, we don't trust the Pharisees, and they're questioning, because they're usually up to no good. Now, so perhaps they're continuing here to just simply harass Jesus about his teaching, wanting him to perform some special sign again for them. Or maybe they're simply asking questions of general interest. I mean, this was a common discussion topic of the time, just like it is a common discussion topic of our time. But anyway, this will soon lead to Jesus' discourse that he'll give to his disciples, starting in verse 22, about his actual revelation, his coming again. So Jesus Christ makes it very clear here, yet again, that the kingdom of God has already come. It's already come in him as the Messiah. And that's very important. I mean, even the Gospel of Mark begins that he became proclaiming the kingdom of God. And as we've been reading through Luke, we've, we've noted Jesus' power along the way, his healings, his teachings, and all these have been testifying over and over again that the kingdom has come. Jesus brought the kingdom, but he brought it in part, and yet there's a fullness that will be revealed when he returns. Now, furthermore, Jesus wants to make it very clear that when the kingdom of God does come in its full glory, you notice in here, that is with all of its blessings, so everything that he purchased for his people will be full, and all of his judgment, it'll be final and complete and just, that it's not going to come with signs in a manner that allow for a precise and far in advance prediction of when it's going to be. Nor will the kingdom appear in some kind of a manner that you could point out and say, oh, the kingdom of God is over there in a certain locale. In fact, maybe you should make it a destination someday. You know, it's not going to be that kind of a thing. And so therefore, people should not be chasing after rumors that are propagated by various sign readers of their times. Such problems like this have not only been an issue in the day of Jesus and in the New Testament, because a lot of the New Testament references this, but it's been a problem throughout church history, and even in the American church throughout church history, maybe especially in the American church. But anyway, there are all sorts of aberrant groups out there, and even certain types of prophecy preaching that in evangelicalism that wants you to pursue these things. And of course, they've all ended in disappointment. Now, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, it's going to come suddenly, as we'll learn, and it will defy all those sign seekers who thought they could masterfully predict with precision when Jesus would return. So the nature of the kingdom of God is really important to notice right away that it's present. He says, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. 
It's among you. And, of course, the older one translation, that the kingdom of God is within you here, is not uh, seen as a proper translation. Certainly, the kingdom is not inside the Pharisees. We know that, the unbelievers. But furthermore, it's better to say that people are in the kingdom. Kingdom is not in people. The kingdom is among us. We are in the kingdom, and the Spirit of God who indwells people who believe in Jesus, they're the ones who are members of the kingdom. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is already in the world. It's already spreading throughout the world. In fact, the last word in the original language here is the word is, emphasizing that the kingdom of God in your midst, it is. And the religious leaders and all the disciples should recognize that the Messiah has come. The Son of God is here, and He has brought us the kingdom, and the Holy Spirit has been given to the church for power, for the advancement of purity in their lives, for the very presence of God to be among us and to advance the kingdom. And so we, all, we often commonly speak of how the kingdom is already but not yet. It's a great phrase. We talk about the kingdom in, the, in those terms. It's already here but not yet in the sense of its fullness. We can talk about perhaps the spiritual nature of the kingdom, but yet the physical nature of the kingdom is coming in the future. Or perhaps even best is to just talk about how the kingdom has been inaugurated but the kingdom is yet to be consummated, and we're waiting for that. So Jesus teaches right off to these Pharisees that the kingdom of God is already here. So there's no need to be searching for the kingdom because Jesus is here. And we should focus upon Jesus Christ and what he's done uh, by his cross and resurrection and what he will do when he returns. There's a whole lot more to come in the kingdom than what we've already experienced. And so we should keep on longing for that day and living for that day when Jesus Christ is revealed in his fullness. And that takes us to the second lesson. Yes, the kingdom of God is already here, but there's more to come, much, much more to come. And Jesus will have his day of glory in verses 22 to 25. And so starting off in verse 22, as he speaks to his disciples, he talks to them about how they're going to enter a time when they just long for him to be back. And then in verses 23 to 24, he talks about how his return is going to be obvious to everybody. And then finally, most interestingly, in verse 25, he talks about his suffering and how this is going to precede his glory. In fact, his suffering predicts his glory. And so we begin off in verse 22, and he said to his disciples now, we're done with the Pharisees for the moment, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So he addresses his disciples here and tells them about this day. They'll be longing. It's going to be, <clears throat> it won't be very long, and his disciples will not have Jesus with him anymore because he'll have died, right? And, and of course, resurrected and gone into heaven, but they'll be longing for Jesus. Now, it could be that that means just simply they're longing for the good old days when Jesus walked around with them. They're missing him. But most likely here, what's being talked about is a true longing for the day of the Lord, his return as the glorious Son of Man, as you see that phrase used here that speaks about him as the glorious one. And that comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. It's Jesus' favorite self-designation. He refers to himself with this title more than any others, far more. And in Daniel 7, 14, it simply says, and to him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion 
glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so as he talks to them about this expression, one of the days of the Son of Man is referring to this day of the Lord, this end, this whole time frame, and everything associated with Christ's return. But these disciples themselves would not see this before they themselves died, as Jesus clearly states to them. It's not that they would never see it. It's just that it would be a little while yet. It's a great delay, as theologians refer to it, and it's this great delay in which we're still living. We're waiting with patient hope. And we too can learn from the rest of the church and from its history that even when we might most expect it, that Jesus would come back, or even when we most desire it, we want it to happen, that Jesus' return might still be delayed. And so we have to be careful with ourselves not to get carried away with our imaginations or our desires, but cultivate faithfulness as we await Jesus' return. And when he returns, as we learn in verses 23 to 24, it's going to be obvious to everyone. It's not going to be hard to figure out. Verse 23 simply says, and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So Jesus warns his followers, his disciples, again, against following rumors that he's already come back. It's not going to be some secret return, some hidden return that only a few people can see, special people, or the kind of return where you have to worry that you might miss it someday. You see, false teachers are just a part of church history. Messianic pretenders, people who proclaim themselves Messiah, or other people who try to say they're Jesus reincarnate or something. They're all over the place. Apostates have been in the church since the beginning. Those are people who deny the faith at some point, pretending they were Christians. And these people play upon and pray upon the church's longing for Jesus because that's what's deep in our soul and our hearts is that we want him to come back. And so it can be very tempting, especially for us if, if we're weaker than others. It was a recurring problem in the first century, and it was addressed repeatedly in the New Testament. There have always been, and there are here today, and there always will be deceivers of whom we must be aware. I remember from my many travels in East Asia working with church, churches and church planters and training pastors and things that cults like this were pretty common in the area where we were working, and their goal is to destroy the church, of course. And what better way to destroy the church than to start introducing what seems to be true doctrine, but it's really false. And so in this particular group I'm thinking of, they would infiltrate the church. Typically, two people would show up on a Sunday. Everyone would be so excited. Oh, look at these new visitors. But then eventually they start secret Bible studies. Just the two of them and the people that they can pick off the back of the herd. And then pretty soon they start introducing heretical, this particular group, heretical com comments about who the Messiah really is. And who she is, actually. And then 
It isn't too much longer before they start introducing immorality into the church because nothing's going to destroy a church more than that, especially in this particular culture that was a shame-based culture. And so the churches that we were working with would tell story after story of people like this coming and infiltrating their churches and their new church plants and have to educate pastors and leaders to be on the lookout and how to deal with these people and how to drive them off. But it's always been a problem. There are always these people who try to tell you when Jesus is coming back and where he's going to be. It's really important to understand that as Jesus teaches here, you're not going to miss the day. No one is going to miss the day. You couldn't miss the day if you closed your eyes. It will not happen. And so that's what he's saying here. When he returns, it's going to be so obvious that it's like when lightning strikes, you can see it from one end of the sky to the other. That's how obvious it's going to be. And notice that it's going to be his day, he says, and that means it's going to be his day. When he returns, there will be no competition for whose day it is. And it's going to be filled with awesome displays of power and glory and judgment that will be missed by no one. Well, then Jesus sticks in here what might seem to us to be something that is a little bit out of place in verse 25, because then he immediately talks about his suffering, drawing their attention and ours back to what's most important for us to focus on right now. But first, he, speaking of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is actually the fifth passion prediction in the Gospel of Luke. In other words, the fifth time that this gospel has talked about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and being raised to life for our justification. And it emphasizes yet again that Jesus' suffering had to come before his glory. And that's a pattern that we see even in our own lives as followers of Jesus. And the greatness of his suffering that he would suffer and that they would observe as disciples should build an expectation of this glory must be really great that's coming because that suffering was really awful. And it's also a reminder again of the wickedness of that generation and the faithlessness of those people that they would actually crucify Jesus Christ. And again, maybe Jesus is perhaps making the point even stronger about his cross by simply saying that his open glory is going to be delayed for a while so that our focus goes to the right place. You see, after his resurrection, he would enter the glory of heaven. We know this. That's where he is now. But we're still awaiting his open glory in our world for all the world to say, see at the day of his revelation. So Jesus teaches his disciples right off that he will yet have his day of glory. It will happen. Yes, he's come preaching it. Yes, he's going to, most importantly, the cross and the resurrection are his purpose of redemption for our lives. But in the meantime, then after, or after that, in the meantime, we're going to be awaiting in this interim period of delay. And our meditation upon the cross and the resurrection in the delay time increases our longing for his return. It actually strengthens us for that. And we're to keep on longing and living for the day of his revelation by meditating upon the cross and the resurrection and all of its benefits and its significance. Of course, it's the salvation from our sins. It's, it's the hope of eternal life that we have and of the resurrection and the power from that resurrection that we get to experience now and in the future. And it gives us the impetus for doing mission because that's why we're still here. That's why he hasn't come back yet 
It's because we, as the church, need to go tell the world about the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, about the kingdom that is already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness, but it will be soon. And so this takes us to the third lesson, which is that Jesus will return suddenly and with swift judgment. So this is why I told you the two stories, short stories at the beginning, because you know not all of us are familiar with Noah and Lot probably here, and maybe some of us have forgotten those stories. But those two classic examples of God's judgment in the Scriptures illustrate the suddenness and the unexpectedness of judgment to come when the Son of Man returns. And so we read about Noah and his days, and you'll notice there's a lot of parallels in these as we go through these. Noah and his days, 26 to 27, and then Lot and his days in verses 28 and 29. And so we read, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So in the days of Noah, like we read, Genesis 6 to 8 again, if you want to read the whole story, those three chapters, people pursued a normal life. Right? I mean, it's described, normal life. Just like people do today, they lived their lives. They enjoyed life, eating and drinking, marrying, all the while simultaneously, especially in Noah's day, they preferred to remain oblivious to God. Oh, they heard Noah preach because Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and they refused to listen to him and to reckon with their sin. The apostle Peter in the New Testament provides further insight into God working during those days. So in 1 Peter 3.20, it describes it this way. The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The Apostle Peter again in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, 2 Peter 2 5, says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we see from the example of Noah, because Jesus is comparing this to what his return is going to be like, the people of Noah's day continued their normal life, and did you catch the phrase, up until the day? That'll come up again when we talk about Lot in a minute. Up until the very day that Noah entered the ark, then God's judgment came upon them suddenly, a flood that would destroy them all. Then we get to Lot and his days, and Jesus continues and gives them another example. He says, well, likewise... Just as it was in the days of Lot, uh, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So the days of Lot, again, I read you a shortened version from Genesis 19. You can read the full version there. People, again, were pursuing a normal life, just as people do today. No different, really. They enjoyed their life just like the days of Noah. And here it gets filled out a little bit more, a little more of the description. They're busy with commerce and agriculture and construction. But isn't it interesting that there's no mention here of Sodom's notorious sin culture that we all sort of know about and we use, which is yet another way to emphasize something, is to not say anything about it. Because then everybody's wondering, well, what about? And you bring it up in your own mind. And it works, 
because everybody knows who these people are. And it also reflects how cultures and people tend to want to view themselves. They want to overlook their sin. They want to excuse their sin. So they observed Lot's righteousness, just like in the days of Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness. Well, these people observed Lot's righteousness, especially as he was most likely a leader in the city. And again, it's the Apostle Peter who provides us with further insight into God's working in those days. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. What an interesting comment. My guess is a lot of us can resonate with that kind of a feeling in our soul, too, by the types of things we might see and observe and be exposed to in our world today. But the people of Sodom, they continued their normal lives up until the very day that Lot left Sodom. Then God interrupted their nice lives, their flourishing society that we read about, with his sudden judgment by fire, a fire that would come and destroy them all in their whole valley. So Jesus teaches us here that when he returns, it's going to be just like that or very similar to it. He's going to return suddenly, and it's going to be swift judgment on the ungodly. In fact, in verse 30, that's the next thing. So, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He tells us it's going to be the same. People will be living their lives, and then God will suddenly judge the world that is coming. Life will appear normal right up until the day Jesus Christ returns in His open glory. People generally will consider they're not in a lot of danger from God. Uh, They won't even believe it often when they're told about it. People will generally live their lives in ignorant rejection of the claims that God has upon them and through the gospel that we as His disciples would preach to them and offer them salvation. So we're to consider these Two historical examples, especially you should this morning if you think you might be in danger. But most of us here today, I would assume, are aligned with the faith of Noah and Lot. And aligned with Noah and Lot and how that faith works itself out in the way we live our lives. So again, listen to the Apostle Peter. As you can tell, this is where you should go in the New Testament to read about a lot of this. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, beginning there. 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying to you, to me, you people who believe in this Jesus and that he's coming back, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then Peter continues. There's more through verse 14, where we await a promise, and we have a job to do, where we're supposed to go tell people about Jesus. That's all in there, too. But the message for the church is the same as it was back then. And that is is to keep 
longing and living for the day of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ because the rescue is coming soon. And that brings us to the fourth lesson, which is that the day of the Lord is going to finalize everything in verses 30 to 37. There's this, the judgment's going to be very sudden, we read in verses 30 to 33, and then it's going to be complete and final in verses 34 to 37. So Jesus' sermon continues, if you will, so will it be in the son of, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So what's it going to be like on the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of Man and Judge of the world? There's not going to be any time. This guy's eating on his roof. There's not going to be any time to go down into the house, get your stuff, and run away. Not going to have time for packing. Um, just like in the flood of Noah and the fire upon Lot Sodom. I mean, many people are going to try to escape and gather their belongings when Jesus returns, but judgment's going to be too swift. They'll salvage nothing, not even their own lives. They'll only have time to flee for a while, and eventually that fleeing will have no effect either because God's judgment will catch up with them. So you can continue to read in Isaiah chapter 2. We read a portion of it this morning, the, the, the portion that is fun to read. But the latter portion in Isaiah chapter 2 talks about all this judgment that will come. And we're to remember Lot's wife. What an interesting admonition. Because, you see, she is an example of apostasy. Pretending to be among God's people, but revealing that she's not. So her negative example teaches us that we have to be prepared in advance, in our hearts, in our lifestyle, of course, so as not to be exposed and judged on that day, the day of the revelation of the Son of Man, for who we might really be. Because at that time when Jesus returned, there's not going to be any time to repent, but her concrete example, Jesus again puts the decision before his listeners, us who read, who read Luke, we have to choose between gaining and preserving our present life with all of its accoutrements, possessions, these things, and then gaining eternal life by willing to give ourselves for Jesus and valuing and honoring him above all things. And then we finally read in verses 34 to 37, the judgment's going to be complete and final. Jesus says, I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So we're given two examples of an eternal separation between close friends, maybe even family members. We note these examples, we got two, presumably two men sleeping at night, and then two women working in the daytime, and so it implies that in Jesus' return could be day or night, and it's going to be among all people. There's not going to be any distinction. And each pair you see in the story is just simply sharing normal life together now, but they'll be separated by very different eternal destinies. One will be taken to fellowship with God, like Noah and Lot were. And one will be left to destruction and then eternal judgment like the world was and like Sodom was. You see, when Jesus returns in glory, it's going to be for the eternal blessing of his own people. 
and for the eternal punishment of the rest. Then in the verse 37, the disciples in their confusion ask a type of question that they're really told not to ask. If you go back to verse 23, you shouldn't be doing this. Where is this going to be? Where is this going to happen? I mean, twice in our passage, it's like, don't go where they tell you he is. So Jesus doesn't give a straight answer like he normally does, but he gives a very revealing answer here. And he says, throughout the whole world. That's where judgment and carnage is going to be. It's going to be everywhere. And he's very specifically referencing a passage in Ezekiel that gets articulated more thoroughly by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 17, where it says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly him in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. It's a great supper for the birds. So Jesus teaches that the day of the Lord is going to finalize everything. Things may not look that bad right now, but the choice has to be made right now. Because when Jesus Christ returns, it's going to be sudden and over with. There'll be no time to prepare for the day. Everything's going to happen too quickly. We should prepare now by heeding the words of Christ so you don't end up as carrion for vultures. And then have to face eternal judgment and the wrath of God for eternity. And though this is a warning passage, we must not forget the blessing in the passage as well for those who are taken to be with God. Remember Noah? Remember Lot? They give us hope. They encourage us that even though we might live amongst people and in a world and in a society, maybe in our families, maybe in our friend groups, maybe in people we work with or whatever it might be, Noah and Lot give us hope that God is going to rescue us and preserve us through everything. And so we can keep on longing for that day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I want to go back as we conclude to verse 22, where it says, Jesus said to his disciples, The day shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. You know, we live in these days. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is speaking this to all of his disciples, even when he wrote his gospel account. We long to see the day of Jesus' return in glory, but apparently we too have to wait. And in the meantime, we're blessed because the kingdom of God's already here, and we're in it. And yet there's so much more to come, and the eternal blessing, and the glory, and the final judgment of our enemies, and the enemies of God. But nevertheless, we have to keep on longing, keep on living for the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord, even though it's not here yet. So I would suggest that we can prepare ourselves in three ways from our passage this morning. First of all, we can prepare our ways, that is, how do we continue to long for the day of Jesus in the midst of waiting? That's hard. How do we keep on living faithfully for Jesus in the midst of a corrupt society? That's hard. So first of all, I would suggest by being only properly concerned for the present and being faithful, but not living for it, as if all there is for your eternity and for life are the things in your life. 
So being only properly concerned for the present. Being faithful with what God has given to you. And the ministries that God has given to you. And the opportunities that he puts in front of you. So simply being faithful and seeing yourself in that light and not being overly concerned with the present is only the world can do because that's all they have. The second way I think we can prepare ourselves is by not being deluded by the sign chasers of our present age. That's a good way to waste your hope during the delay. But our hope should be put in Christ himself, not in all of these imaginary things that we can't know are for certain. So second of all, don't be deluded by present-day sign seekers, sign chasers, wasting your hope in that area. Use your energy. Use your mind. Put your affections and your soul upon Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done and what he will yet do, even though you don't know, none of us do, all the details on how it's going to unfold. Third, I would encourage us to be prepared by enjoying the interim, being patient, growing in grace, experiencing the kingdom for what we have now, and expanding the kingdom. Be involved. Get involved in the mission of the church. So those are the three ways I would encourage us to long for, to live for, from our passage this morning, is be properly, only properly concerned with the present, and don't be deluded by people that are going to try to take you off track. Focus on Jesus and enjoy the interim. Our Apostle Peter, again, has a lot to say on this topic, as you've noticed this morning. Finally, I want you to turn to an actual passage in Scripture, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. So yeah, we're just continuing in this like whole book. We've read most of it. Um, 2 Peter 3, 8. But there are a few phrases in here I'm going to draw out for us, and I would suggest that these become prayer topics. So you can underline them in your Bible. And you can take them to your small group or your prayer meeting that you go to or just by yourself, things to pray about. So 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, so here's the first thing to pray about. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? And we'll pray about these in a moment together. He continues in verse 13. But according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, and here's another prayer request, be on your guard, lest being carried 
away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. And here's another prayer request. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we read this passage of Scripture in Luke. We read about what you told your disciples, what you tell us as your disciples. And we're amazed that our minds and our hearts are just swollen with expectation and questions and longing. And we pray that you would fill us with faithfulness as your people. That as our Apostle Peter tells us, that we would be living lives of holy conduct and godliness as we look for that final day. That you would work in us peace spotlessness and blamelessness, that you would protect us and and cause us by your Spirit to be on guard, that you would put thoughts and doubts and questions in our minds when we might get approached by people that are unprincipled, that distort scriptures, that teach things that are not there, that are not clear, so that we wouldn't be carried away, but we would be focused upon you, Lord Jesus, and how you have redeemed us. We also pray finally too, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit that you would cause us to grow in grace and in knowledge of you, that we would know you more fully as our Lord, more fully as our Savior, that in all these things that we would become a more faithful and a more fruitful people for your sake, for the sake of your kingdom as it continues to grow in this age and we look forward to the day when you bring it in all of its full glory. And we pray these things for your full glory and for that day. Amen.